0: Today, I'm going to be speaking with Joe Laser. Joe is the head of marketing at A-Team. He is a data-driven marketing executive obsessed with the art and science of storytelling. He is known as an award-winning content strategist and best-selling author of The Storytelling Edge. He is a well-known journalist and researcher who has received grants from the CUNY Journalism School and conducted groundbreaking political neuroscience research. He is also a keynote speaker having spoken at Web Summit, Collision, Content Marketing World, South by Southwest, and more. Welcome, Joe. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start off by asking my guests, tell me your journey. Tell me where you started and some of the aha moments that have got you on the path that you are on now. Yeah, it's a great question.
1: So like a lot of marketers today, I started out as a journalist. What really got me into that journey I think my first big aha moment in understanding the power of digital media right, and creating content online came when I just graduated high school. So somewhere between graduating high school, starting at college, Sarah Lawrence College, and I'm a huge New York Giants fan. So I went up with one of my buddies to Albany, where the Giants used to have their training camp to watch training camp with the Giants. Um, and while I was there, I started... Basically, observing really closely and writing these very detailed training camp practice reports. A couple thousand words um, as I watched different position groups charted how uh, the offense went versus defense and seven on sevens, 11 on 11s. And I just started submitting them to a few popular Giants blogs and they got picked up. And then suddenly I saw these practice reports getting <laughs> reposted on Giants blog after Giants blog. Thousands of comments coming in and I was like a big aha, holy shit moment for me, right? Where I was like, (laughs) oh wow, like I wrote this thing and now like the entire Giants fan community is engaging with it. And this was, you know, interesting to look back on now because it was a pre-social media age, right? Like this was 2006, there's Facebook, right? But it was only for college students. It was just getting opened up more broadly then. There was no Twitter, you know, Instagram. So this content just sort of spreading in more mysterious ways then. But that gave me this real sense of, oh, wow, like I can write things. People are going to find it entertaining and valuable. They're going to read it. They're going to engage with it. And it was the best feeling in the world as a young writer. And it was the first thing that turned me on to sort of the power of publishing on the internet which is something that, you know, till today, like I still get a thrill out of, right? You know, I have a newsletter with uh, 140,000 subscribers. And when I send that out and I see people start engaging with it, commenting, DMing me, riffing off ideas that I've put out there, like that's the greatest feeling in the world. So for me, you know, in terms of finding the passion of what I want to do with my life, like creating interesting things... That people are going to respond to, and that's going to like entertain them and inform them. That was the core moment for me, you know, almost seventeen years ago now.
0: Wow, I'm going to speculate, but I have a feeling those stories you wrote about the Giants camp, I think they evoked an emotion. Is that correct? I mean,
1: probably just discussed with our backup quarterback situation <laughs> at the time, which was really, really not great in terms of who was backing up Eli. I think that's where I really popped off was some kind of scathing, snarky commentary that probably a beat reporter <laughs> couldn't get away with, but an 18-year-old kid absolutely could. You know, football's, listen, and there's nothing more emotional than Giants fans during training <laughs> camp. You know, you never have, never have as much hope as you do right before the season starts. <laughs> so tapping into that, like, yeah, there was absolutely emotion involved.
0: So tell me, I mean, how big of a role does emotion play now in storytelling for you? It's an interesting
1: question because, you know, what is storytelling without emotion? Like, there's no such thing as storytelling without emotion. The key to a great story is the sense of tension and conflict. We just wrote about this. You know, everyone's seen that Apple sustainability ad going around, I think, with Octavia Spencer playing Mother Nature. Have you seen that? Yes. Yeah. And so just look at that piece of brand storytelling, for instance, right? The reason that it works so well is that right off the bat, you have this deep feeling of tension and unease, right? You see the Apple employee going down the hallway. Like she looks like she's having an absolute panic attack. She's doing that sort of like speed waddle walk run, right? And then you go cut into a conference room and you have Tim Cook just super almost hyperventilating as he's rehearsing what he's going to say. He's like, our sustainability initiatives have been (laughs) this year. And he's like, and he's starting to really freak out. And so you as a viewer are on the edge of your seat. You want to see like, why is everyone in this room seem to be, you know, panicking so much? Like, why is Tim Cook always like super cool and collected, look more nervous than he's ever been in his life? And the entire video from there plays off this tension of mother nature interrogating Apple on their sustainability efforts. That's really capped by like this stare down about four minutes into the video. When we think about what actually gets people to engage with a brand story that actually gets someone to watch anything that you post for more than the first two seconds, you need to have that tension, that feeling of conflict and unease off the bat. Humans love stories with conflict intention. Like you did not have a story with conflict intention. if it was just Mother Nature came to Apple and asked them about their sustainability report and (laughs) said, you guys did a great job and everyone went home happy. Like that's a really boring video. (laughs) But a lot of brands, like that's the approach that they would take, right? Is because they want to be like, oh, we're doing a great job. So let's just have everything feel hunky-dory. But when it comes to what actually makes for the stories that we love, that keep us in the movie theater for that last hour, even though we really need to pee, right? It's because there's that sense of tension in our knees where we have to know what happens next.
0: Yeah, yeah correct me if I'm wrong, I have a sense because I've watched some old movies recently and it seems that the level of tension and emotion has been ratcheted up quite a bit in storytelling over the years. Is that a function of there's so much content out there now that it takes even more to evoke an emotion? For example, I recently watched The Godfather 2 and, you know, it was good, but it just wasn't at the same level that movies are now in terms of, you know, the excitement, the tension, everything. And a lot of it, you know, people rely on that on motion and other things now. I mean, that was just more about solid storytelling. But the level of motion, for me, it seemed like it's much more ratcheted up these days in storytelling in the movies than it used to be. Not that it wasn't there. I think what you're saying has always been true about stories, but it seems like the level has been ratcheted up and made me think about it when I'm talking to you. Is that changing now? Because there is a lot of content out there now, right? That we're consuming on a regular basis, not just written content, but a lot of video content from all different sources and all different creators. So I was curious, what's your take on it? Because I'm sure you've seen it even when you were the 18-year-old writing about the giants, I'm sure you've evolved and changed as well in your storytelling. I think pacing has changed. I don't think the attention at its core has changed. I think that
1: viewers have in a lot of ways become accustomed to more quick cuts within storytelling to keep your mind almost like addictively engaged. I have an eight-month-old son. And this is actually a huge issue in children's content, for instance, like Coco Chameleon. And I think that's how you pronounce it. I haven't let my son watch it yet. But there's all this like algorithmically optimized content for kids and they realized basically how to create more or less a drug for kids brains is to have these stories where you're changing the scene basically every second and a half in terms of like the camera angle so just like cut 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 and this it really plays on our short attention spans and keeps us super engaged you see this in like the TikTok style of video creation now, right? Where it's like those really fast series of cuts just does some sort of trick on our brain that keeps us more engaged. And as we get more exposed to that, the theory is that we have less of a tolerance for a little bit of like slower pacing and storytelling and more artistic shots. So I think that might be a factor.
0: I think you're nailing it on the head because when I think about the Godfather 2, there were longer scenes, right? And then if I look at, have you seen the recently Oppenheimer? Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, like with cuts and there's creating tension and action through the editing and the pacing. So I think you're definitely onto something there. The pacing has definitely changed. Part of good technology, but I think it's very much related to, as you're saying, attention spans.
1: Our brains just get very used to certain formulas and our tolerance for kind of like a little bit slower, more artistic pacing visually I imagine has eroded a bit should be really interesting to look at if there's any neuroscience research around this. One thing that we've definitely seen, you know, I've gotten the chance to spend time with and collaborate with a good amount of neuroscientists that are focused on neuromarketing. So understanding how different forms of storytelling and marketing affect the brain. One thing that they have seen is that especially when it comes to social video, The presence of people and really quick action within those first three seconds is the key to getting much longer view times through and a greater emotional response from those viewers. But you compare this to 50 years ago, like often I find myself when I'm watching like older pre smartphone TV shows or movies, right? I'm almost jealous of those characters for how not addicted to their phones that they are. (laughs) This is probably like my biggest self-criticism for myself is that social media is screwed with all of our brains, right? I watch more reels than I care to admit. You know, we're all susceptible to kind of being programmed to crave this really quick form content, which isn't always like the best or most artful storytelling. It's just the candy that our brains have come to love.
0: Yeah, it catches attention. is interesting. It has a good couple of minutes of time killing, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, 100%.
0: Unfortunately, but it is. But yeah. I mean, it's partly kind of related. Like, I think we're so bombarded with messaging, keeping up with everything. Everybody's seeking a little bit of that refuge. Like, you know, just let me have my mind turn off for a few seconds and watch something engaging and fun and just different, right? Not looking for something just kind of just a little bit quirky, a little bit weird.
1: Yeah, I think the question is how much of that stuff is actually memorable? My friend Jay Kunzo likes to talk about this concept of reach versus resonance in content. So, so much often now we optimize for reach, right? We concoct insane SEO schemes of content and topic clustering. And we go out and so many marketers like outsource their content to now some combination of AI and freelancers who are more low skilled and charging like 10 bucks an hour to create a lot of really generic SEO optimized content in mass in hopes of tricking Google's algorithm enough to surface, you know, key clusters of content pieces around a topic. And that gets you a reach, and we all get really addicted to seeing that, you know, Google analytics chart go up and to the right. But we think less about the impression that we're making on people with our brand when they actually come to that content. Like if someone comes, reads a really super low quality, mediocre piece of content that just has nailed, you know, answering basic SEO questions and its H twos. How much is that actually doing for your brand? You know, if you're able to put an inspirational quote on LinkedIn and get you know a few thousand impressions and likes, but it doesn't really have any core connection to your business. It's nothing that your audience would really remember. Afterwards, how much value does that really create for you versus thinking about deeply resonating with someone, of actually making them care, making them think about something in a new way and investing in channels where maybe your overall audience reach and size may be smaller, where you're able to make much more of an impact. And you know, that can be things like podcasts, like you're doing here, right? If someone's actually subscribed and listening to your podcast, that 45 minutes of engagement is so much more valuable than one three-second impression that you're getting across You know, TikTok or LinkedIn. If we think about a channel like Events, that I think is incredibly undervalued now as a customer engagement channel, but also even as a content and storytelling medium, right? You have someone come to an event that you're throwing, like this generative AI salon series that we've done, which has been hugely successful for us. And we see if people have really interesting talks, debates, discussions, networking, have a few espresso martinis with our team. That develops such a deeper relationship than any really quick viral content could ever generate. So, just in this, you know, we think about the content landscape today, I feel like everyone's very much chasing reach, but we don't think about
0: resonance nearly enough. So let me ask you, when you need to talk to someone about storytelling, what percentage would you say should be reach versus resonance? If you had to say, because obviously you're saying resonance is much more important. It's going to have more of an impact. And, and that's true. I mean, ultimately, what good is storytelling unless people remember and retain components of the story?
1: I think your goal should always be resonance, right? And now the way that you package and deliver it can help you achieve greater reach, right? Having a strong hook on your LinkedIn post. But then the core idea that you bring people into has to be one that they're chewing on afterwards that they're thinking about that they might mention to a colleague when they're at happy hour if you're just aiming for reach without saying i'm going to put a new idea or a new story or something of value into the world you're not actually accomplishing much of anything with the stories that you're telling you know the goal of Marketing shouldn't just be to game the system to get more vanity metrics, more impressions. It should be to deliver value to people and to help them in some core way. If you're B2B, help them do their job better, help them get that next promotion, but deliver it to in a way that isn't going to feel like work, right? but that's actually going to feel like fun, entertaining, and intellectually stimulating. And for B2C, help people enjoy the passions in their lives were than they have before to feel like they are a part of something greater. Like this is what Apple does really, really well. You know, we're willing to buy anything from Apple, you know, an MP3 player, a watch, AR headset from Apple because we very much believe in Apple's why. We believe in that feeling that Apple gives us that when we open up that new iPhone, that new laptop, that we are becoming more creative, that we are joining a tribe that is challenging the status quo, that is thinking differently. That core deep resonance and emotional feelings what Apple does really, really well. And you see when they choose the stories that they tell, like with the sustainability, Mother Nature video, right? They're always gearing back to that. The share belief system that they're playing on there is like, what's their target audience? It's affluent consumers who probably are more liberal on the whole and care deeply about climate change and want to feel like when they're buying an apple product that hey i'm helping the planet and i'm also you know in some ways virtue signaling that like uh, you know i'm doing good for the world by buying these apple products and so they tell a story that you know, makes you feel like you see that like, oh, wow, like, of course, I'm, you know, never going to buy anything other than an Apple again, because every purchase that I'm making is helping the planet versus if I bought from, you know, Microsoft or someone else. So being really strategic with your storytelling to focus on that resonance, that shared connection with your target consumer is really what your goal should always be. If you find yourself doing something just for reach, but you're not actually trying to resonate with someone at all off of that, it's likely not to be very successful.
0: I think one of the components you just mentioned about working on resonance is somehow having a shared experience. And going back to Apple, did you see recently their event that they did earlier this week? And they introduced their Apple Watch. And the story they were showing a bunch of people having birthdays. Happy birthday, happy birthday. And as it turns out, these are people that were actually saved in one way or another by the Apple Watch so they could enjoy another birthday, right? But it all started with birthdays. It gives you the backstory about these people and their birthdays. Like one fellow, I think, had an accident and was unconscious, but his Apple Watch actually called 911. And now he's thankful he's alive and there because his watch allowed him to have another birthday. And I think that's what you're talking about, a shared experience.
1: Yeah, I do remember an ad that was on a similar theme that I think came out around the Super Bowl where it was like, Apple can save you from dying. It was really like emotionally poignant. But yeah, I think that's maybe the most heavy handed version of that. Sure. You could create like, I don't know what the shared value or belief system is there. Like,
0: I think we all share like being able to enjoy a birthday, right? <laughs> but yeah. It wasn't that strong. I mean, maybe I had to it. was actually well done. But I think at the end, you kind of realize, hey, I too would be thankful if I could have another birthday, if I went through a trauma like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Buy Apple if you don't want to die. I mean, that's a great
0: message. (laughs) Everyone wants to stay alive. (laughs) But so I'm curious, what would you say are like kind of the three key components you've seen that can really help with enhancing resonance when doing a story? So I think the biggest thing is that you need
1: to have a storyteller that's actually going to connect with people. Like People don't follow brands, they follow people. We even see this trend in the media landscape over the last 5 years where we've seen this exodus of top personalities from media companies to become more solo creators, right? The sub of media. And that's, you know, it's indicative of a larger trend where people... Generally, more and more, we want to follow creators, we want to follow individuals with a voice that can connect to us through a personal anecdote or story versus just following a brand and publication. And so having someone inside of your company or who represents your company that can connect to your audience is really, really key. Like the biggest piece of advice to give to most B2B companies is, you know, who do you have inside of your company that you can Develop as a creator that represents your brand, that serves as that personification of everything that you believe in, that voice of the stories that you're going to tell, because you're going to get 10 times the engagement and resonance that way than if everything is coming out from a faceless brand handle that's, you know. Coming out from blogs like signed by the name of your company. When I was at Contently, it was me and our founder, Shane Snow, we, you know, get a lot of keynote speeches, go on podcasts, you know, write books, make educational course videos. And people felt like they had a connection to Contently because they felt like they had a connection to us. And we, you know, represented the type of people that they wanted to work with and learn from and create content with. At A Team, like we similarly do that with our CEO. Raphael is this very like visionary, charismatic Israeli founder, former, you know, accomplished coder and product leader himself. And our audience is more like founders and engineers. So they really connect with Raphael. So he becomes more of the voice and personification of the brand. But every company sort of needs to find that storyteller inside of their organization to tell those stories. And maybe sometimes it might not be someone whose core inside of your company, right? Like I think with B2C, this is why influencer marketing works a lot because can you get someone who's really genuinely aligned with your brand that can connect with your target audience? That's where I'd start as as number one. And and that's really maps to... In my book, we have this idea of the 4 elements of great storytelling. The first is relatability. So when you have a storyteller you can relate to who's going to connect to you through their own personal stories and experience, that's really key. Second is tension, which we already talked about. There is this idea of fluency. So, the idea of making your stories just really easy to engage with. In video, right, that is a lot of those quick cuts at action, those people off the bat. But in writing in general, it's not trying to make yourself sound smart, right? Sound academic, sound overly formal. We want to engage with content that has the voice and colloquialisms of real people. So, those are some of the really key things we want to play on. And if you want a bonus fourth one, it's novelty. So, are you putting New ideas out into the world? Are you showing people stories, characters they might not necessarily have seen before? When neuroscientists study people's brains under fMRI scans, when engaging with different types of content, if it's novel content where it's things they haven't seen before, parts of the brain light up that don't otherwise. And key metrics like long term memorability are much more likely to be engaged than if you're showing someone something they've seen a million times
0: before. Sure. I mean, that makes sense. Maybe that's what we're looking for in those reels, right? (laughs) Looking for novelty in the reels. So what are common mistakes you see people still do with storytelling that when you see and say, oh, I just wish they wouldn't do that?
1: I think so much of brand storytelling is over-engineered or it's made lifeless by a million different internal reviews the top thing is not really trying to tell stories to begin with in your content right to just rely on generic informative seo articles on linkedin posts and updates and just trying to be across every channel with a mass quantity of content but not focusing on quality and resonance the second is you know not allowing their brand voice to have like a real personality to have that storyteller behind it I'd say another one is that lack of risk-taking, the ability to make fun of yourself, to poke fun of yourself. Look at the Apple ad we were talking about before, like they clown on Tim Cook at a few different points in that, right? And it makes it more funny and engaging. Look at the Barbie movie, right? I think part of what made the Barbie movie work is that the CEO of Mattel, who really pushed that story forward, was willing to also make fun of himself massively, Within the script, right? There was no pushback on that with Greta Gerwig to make the CEO of Mattel character and Barbie kind of this patriarchal buffoon. That's something that a lot of brands are afraid to do. But like, if you actually want to seem like a real relatable company that people want to work with, like making fun of yourself is a great hack to do that.
0: Why does that work? Tell us why that works.
1: Well, like the reason that it works is because like no one likes self serious people, right? <laughs> and we don't really like self serious brands. You know, do you want to hang out with someone who is overly sensitive of their personal image and not willing to poke fun of themselves? Like we naturally gravitate to other human beings that are willing to be self-deprecating. Same thing works for brands.
0: I agree, with you, but it's just a hard sell for a lot of people. And that's what I'm trying to, you know, figure out. I think people are
1: really protective of their image and people are inherently risk averse. You know, like the motivation for a lot of marketing leaders is to not get fired, right? And so like making fun of one of your key executives is like gonna risk getting fired. Doing risky things in your content requires a lot of internal stakeholder management as well. You have to get a lot of people on your side... And it's often if there's one person at the top of the food chain who says I don't like this, like it's very easy for a good concept to get killed. You know, I've worked with a lot of brands over the years in their content strategy, and there's a lot of good ideas that get topped at the top because there is someone who does not really want to take the risk, who doesn't think that this idea is funny or worth it, or. You know, how are we going to measure the ROI of this, which is, you know, the perpetually existential question that plagues a lot of content programs and a lot of brand storytelling programs, right? So there's so many ways for a good idea to die inside of most corporations.
0: Yeah. And I think people want, to see that you're just a real human being, right? You know, you're okay. You can take a little bit of poking and then being poked at a little bit, you know? And it's okay. It's authentic. It's fun as long as it's untasteful. So I agree. I think it does work, but a lot of people are hesitant to go down that path because they're scared it's going to hurt their image. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of opportunities that are left
1: on the table as a result of that.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. So what role is AI playing with storytelling? Is it making it better, hurting it, not having an impact? We're
1: in a really interesting place AI and content,
0: and I think we very much need
1: to determine the future that we want. The way I see that this is going to play out is I do think that AI will take a lot of content jobs, but the content jobs that it takes are the ones that are more commoditized right now. So you think of... All the people churning out 50 SEO articles on like what is an influencer marketing platform for 50 different influencer marketing technology companies that's not really adding any additional value into the world. Like it's so much easier now to scale those kind of SEO schemes by leveraging AI and then having like one human editor to take out the hallucinations and fix it up. But when we think about true storytellers and creatives, people that are creating things that resonate deeply with people. I do think AI has the potential to give solopreneur creators much greater capabilities than they ever had before, right? A lot of the infrastructure that a brand or or traditional publisher would give you can now be done so much more by AI. Like Grammarly Pro is a killer copy editor. Mid-Journey allows me to create, you know, images for my newsletter that are way better than I can do on my own because I'm a terrible designer. CapCut allows you to like take your podcast and edit it into really engaging short social clips, right? All of these things that we need infrastructure around us to do, like AI can suddenly do. So I think that's on one hand is really exciting for you know individual creators who are trying to build their own media brands. We also have just have a ton of risks on that horizon. The role that AI is going to play in TV shows in Hollywood is really uncertain you know we see this with the writer strike right now where are very valid way like a big concern of the union is that ai is going to be used to basically you know marginalize the work of creatives in hollywood that will have basically ai generated scripts going out there and then writers will be hired for a rewrite instead of an original script because it's much much cheaper for the studios right they're not gonna pay long-term royalties they'll pay a day fee rewrite the script and now like what Hollywood is saying is like, oh, like don't worry about that because the ruling just came down that AI generated work can't be copyrighted. Well, yeah, but what they'll probably end up doing is just having writers who are the human authors using AI to turn out a bunch of shitty scripts still and then hiring other writers to rewrite it. And we saw how this played out 15 years ago with streaming during the last writer strike where like at the time streaming was just thought of as like YouTube web series so there are no royalties really negotiated for writers and actors through that. And now we've had 15 years of shows popping off on Netflix and other streaming services and the creatives not getting their fair share. You know, there's like stories of Suits writers right now as that's become like the most streamed show of all time, seeing literally no money from that huge boom for Netflix. So, you know, the same way we do so little about streaming... 15 years ago and then turned out oh wow this is going to be way different like with ai like it's going to be 100x that right we have no idea what these systems are going to be capable of in two or three years and we need to think about what are the protections that we want to put for creatives in our ecosystem yeah ai can drive greater efficiency and labor efficiency but often like we forget that like we're the labor right human beings in this entire ecosystem like are are the labor being influenced so like is just a, a maniacal pursuit of maximum efficiency like really what we want? I was at a AI event last night. I was listening to Tim Wu, his professor at Columbia, and played a, a major role in Biden White House on a lot of privacy legislation. And, and he was talking about, you see those are just 1950s, like a time life story from back then where it's like the crisis of leisure, you know, with the rise of technology, like Really, in the future, we're only gonna have to have one person in each household working 20 hours a day. And what are we gonna do with all of this leisure time? You know, it's it's insane to see now where it's like any household in New York has two parents, like you know, like in mine working 50 plus hours a week. (laughs) And the point he made is that as humans, like we have this incredible capability just to make more work for ourselves, right? We got email, which is a huge productivity improvement overwriting letters, but what happens? We just have more communication, just have more freaking emails that you need to respond to. My worry with AI is that it's just going to lead to an increasingly like amplified war of scale in terms of content creation, where it's like, oh, to stand out, like now I need to create like 100 shitty articles a week instead of 10 shitty articles a week. I need to create like 50 reels clips instead of five a week, but we're not actually going to like get anything done right. We're just going to be in greater, greater competition, looting the ecosystem with shitty content. So that's all to say at the end of this, like way too long rant right now is that my hope is that, that this all leads to a backlash towards quality and towards like human crafted content. At the end of this, what we will see is that you know creatives who have real stories to tell, who have valuable expertise to give, are going to be able to do so much more on their own because of these AI tools that do help your productivity, that do help your creativity in a lot of ways. Like I love using ChatGPT, like when I'm stuck on a line right? To give you that idea. It's still not good at dialogue or humor analogies, but it'll give you something like kind of bad that you can then make good. And often, like I find that whether I'm like screenwriting, whether I'm writing like thought leadership posts, it'll save me like 30 minutes or an hour. Like that's huge. You know, the way that grammarly go, like saves me on copy editing. And I don't have to like pour over a piece five times myself. Like that's huge. So there's going to be, I think, a lot of potential for storytellers and creators to do more through AI. But on a broader societal scale, we have to think about how do we really want these technologies to play into our larger ecosystem? And how do we keep ourselves from just getting into this out-of-control amplification or escalation of the content wars where the web is just polluted with like so much more crap than it is today? And it's already polluted with a lot of crap.
0: Well, the interesting thing with AI is also it's only as good as the query that comes from a human, actually, right? I mean, AI doesn't really do it on its own completely. It really requires a good query. And I think that's one of the skill sets that's probably going to require more and more is people who are good at doing the right query to get the best out of AI.
1: It's also taste. Like, do you know whether this is good or not? Do you know that an idea is good or not that AI is giving you? Yeah, like AI has commodified idea generation so much more, right? Like it's like pretty good at generating ideas. There's this recent study, I think from the University of Michigan that like compared ideas generated by AI to ideas generated by like college students and the quality of the ideas rated by AI were then rated by like another group as higher quality than the ones created by humans. But then the ability to like take those ideas and make it like one step better, right? Or to understand which of those ideas is actually promising is where the real like skill is going to be. And yeah, then like if you can actually prompt well, or if you can like act like a manager, essentially coaching the AI through what you want to output, you're going to get you're going to get much better results. Although I still disagree with people who say that ChatGPT is a good writer. It's good when you're like a machine wrote this, but it still to me does not pass the test of writing something that someone would like actually choose and enjoy reading. It's really good at like this BB B- minus like corporate voice and tone. And can be really helpful for that if like you just need a landing page or like a sales email and you're like, don't actually care about it being that that good. When you actually wanted to name something, write dialogue, write a funny metaphor, it still isn't there. And maybe that's because it's been trained on all the content on the internet. And generally, most of the content on the internet sucks. Um, So maybe it's not surprising that it kind of gives us this, you know, bland porridge of writing.
0: Well, that's the one thing I think AI still has a long way to go to incorporate emotion, right? I mean, we say it's artificial intelligence, but in many ways, to me, it's automated intelligence, right? Just taking a lot of data very quickly and processing it, but it's still that element that we talked about earlier—you know, bringing emotion, things like that—that's going to probably take some time to get to that level. Yeah, there was a, a sign in the
1: Hollywood Writers' Strike that someone held up that said, "ChatGPT doesn't have childhood trauma," which I thought was great because <laughs> it's like you know, storytelling is an art form. It's what's helped us rise from being a mid-rate species to the most dominant one on the planet is our ability to tell stories, connections with people, shared myths that gear us towards a common goal. I think at the core, like people inherently want stories from other humans. And so I'm also like I'm more skeptical on the idea that everyone's just gonna want like personalized content created by AI. I think some of that posturing from the tech community misunderstands actually like how humans use stories as a tool for connection.
0: Right. So, tell me, what do you see as the future of storytelling changing with all these new happenings you know, from AI to everything? Or what area would you like to delve into further in terms of storytelling moving forward?
1: We've heard a lot. You know, I I don't think storytelling really changes that much. Um, the core elements of storytelling are always the same. Like we have a universal grammar of stories that have been there for thousands of years, if not millions of years, within humanity. So. The idea that stories themselves are really going to change is unlikely. The mode through which we tell stories, new channels are always emerging, but there's universal grammar to stories of character, of plot, of different story archetypes from, you know, the hero's journey to Vonnegut's shapes of stories that will always be enduring.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. I think mean, that's true. So uh, if there was an influential figure in your industry in storytelling you'd love to have lunch with, who would it be and why? Mm, That's a great question. Uh, I'd say
1: Jesse Armstrong, the showrunner for Succession, my favorite TV show of all time. I would love to pick his brain on his approach and how he thinks about mapping out his arcs. I think there's no more masterful piece of of storytelling on TV today or, or this millennium than what he's accomplished there. And it's a story that like I get more out of each time I watch it, each time I rewatch Succession. So yeah, getting to have lunch with like a true artist like that, be incredible. And also throughout there, Greta Gerwig, I think, is probably the most you know talented storyteller and showrunner of my generation or director of my generation. So her as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for being on the show today. It's been great talking to you. I've learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to what. Transpires with AI and storytelling. And I hope to have you back and we can talk more about it as some of these things unfold. Fantastic. That'd be great. Thanks for having me. Thanks again. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iresearch.com and make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.